Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a physician explains the role hyperbaric oxygen can play in helping to heal some types of wounds. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy can cause the body to release the progenitor cells it has, and these are cells that can go to the site of injury to restore the health of those tissues and allow them to heal. A cancer specialist tells what the thoracic oncology program has to offer people who are diagnosed with lung cancer. All the specialists are right there at the same time. They get to their right course of treatment faster. And a professor from Arizona talks about the benefits and risks of vaccination. I do not imply that vaccines are 100 percent safe at all times. They cause far fewer serious adverse reactions than almost any other medical product that's available. All that along with a selection from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. During the month of November, we're taking a look at lung cancer, and today we'll learn how receiving care from a team of caregivers can improve survival for people with lung cancer. Then we'll discuss one of the most successful public health interventions of the past century, vaccination. But first, we'll explore the role of hyperbaric oxygen therapy in helping to heal wounds. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy was initially used to treat deep sea divers with decompression sickness known as the bends. Over the past few decades, the role of this therapy has expanded to include the treatment of a number of other medical conditions, particularly those that do not respond to other therapies. In the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about how hyperbaric oxygen is used to treat a variety of medical conditions is Dr. Marvin Hybor. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine, as well as the medical director of wound care and of hyperbaric medicine at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Hybor. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, let me start by asking you to describe what hyperbaric oxygen therapy is, how it works, how it's used as a medical treatment. Basically, uh, it is treatment with 100% oxygen at higher than atmospheric pressure. So as a result, if, with patients, they're able to go into the chamber and um, breathe 100% oxygen. We're able to double t up to triple the pressure in the chamber. And as a result, we can double or triple the amount of oxygen that they're breathing and that's being delivered to their tissues. So inside this chamber, um, the, the oxygen is more concentrated than it is just breathing in, in general. Right, when we're just breathing right now, we can, the oxygen content's about 20, 21%, and we're at about one atmosphere. So uh, that, that's the partial pressure of oxygen as well, is about 210 millimeters mercury. By breathing 100% oxygen, we can get that up to about 750 millimeters mercury. Okay. Then if we double the pressure in the chamber while breathing 100% oxygen, that partial pressure goes up to 1,500. And if we triple it, it goes up to 2,200 plus. So we go from breathing normally, you and I right now, about 200 millimeters mercury ox oxygen to 2,000 or more. So what, are this, what does the chamber look like? It is a monoplace chamber. It's a single-person chamber. It's made of acrylic, so it's see-through. Okay. So the patient is on a uh, stretcher, right, with a cushion. They're able to sit up about 30 degrees, and when they go in, they can move around, see-through, see the nurse, see the doctor on the other side of the chamber, and then they can also see the TV screen for watching a show or watching a movie. So they're reclining, like on a cot, sort of reclining, laying back, and they can sleep or watch TV or listen to music exactly. during the thing. Okay. Well, let's talk about in terms of wound care. Um, talk to me about the types of wounds or injuries that may be helped by hyperbaric oxygen. When it comes to hyperbaric oxygen therapy, we're really talking about uh, two main areas in the arena of wound care. There's many indications, uh, 14, 15 indications for hyperbaric oxygen therapy and then some other experimental areas. It, there's a large portion of those that are emergent indications and those for in the emergency department and hospitalized. 
but specific to wound care, there are a couple uh, specific ones. One of them is advanced diabetic foot ulcers. So patients who have undergone treatment, standard treatment, and that's typically provided in the wound care center uh, with uh, coordinating with their endocrinologist or their primary on blood sugar control, offloading that foot with special footwear, just treating any infection, uh, debriding any dead tissue, uh, and then also assessing their vascular status. If despite all that, there's no response, we have some other advanced therapies in the wound care center we can use. One of those is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. When we do that, the overall evidence suggests that we can more than double the chances of that wound healing at that point because those wounds that have, despite standard care, have failed to progress only have about a 30 to 40% chance of healing pretty low. When we add hyperbaric oxygen therapy to the other treatments as an additional advanced therapy, we can increase the healing rates to between 60 and 80%. The other th reason for hyperbaric oxygen therapy is their risk of amputation, major amputation above the ankle in this setting is above 20%, and we can decrease that to 10%. And uh, these non-healing diabetic fo foot ulcers or on their foot somewhere, uh, or lower limb, these are pretty common, right? I mean, there's a lot of people with diabetes that end up facing a non-healing wound at some point. Correct. There are okay. millions of patients uh, with a diabetic foot ulcer at any given time in this country. And with the rate of diabetes increasing, the rate of diabetic foot ulcers is going up as well. Now, what about venous stasis ulcers? So in terms of venous stasis ulcers, this, these are wounds uh, specific to the lower leg between the ankle and the knee. And Does it just come from bad circulation? or It comes from venous disease. So uh, their arterial circulation carries the blood with the oxygen down to the tissues from the heart and lungs. And then once it's dropped off the nutrients and the oxygen, now that blood needs to get back to the heart and lungs to be resupplied it goes through the venous system to get there. And this is a problem with the venous system where it, the pressures usually are low and there's valves that help, one-way valves that help the blood get back to the heart. When the pressures in those veins start to go up and the valves start to leak, the blood leaks down into the lower leg, then out into the tissues and you get swelling in your legs. When you get swelling in your legs, it's not good for the skin and the skin can break down form blisters, and then ulcerations that don't heal. Uh, in the wound care center, we can actually uh, look at these patients, assess their arterial flow, make sure their blood flow going down is okay, uh, treat any type of infection that's there, get rid of any dead tissue within the wound, and then provide advanced compression therapy to get the swelling down and uh, to heal these wounds. And then those wounds that fail to respond, despite that, we can use some advanced therapies as well. So what is it about the oxygen that is so healing for these types of wounds? What does oxygen do? So again, venous stasis ulcers aren't specifically used for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, um, but uh, for the diabetic foot ulcers, it, there's really two things that are going on. The, the wounds that are failing to heal despite the standard therapy uh, in diabetic wounds specifically, they... Uh, they lack a lot of the growth factors and the cells that are required for healing. So locally, hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, produces a lot of growth factors. Just tell the body, hey, there's a wound that needs to be healed. And then systemically, diabetics in particular, uh, but other types of patients who benefit from hyperbarics as well, uh, can be low in what we call progenitor stem cells. These are stem cells from a patient's own bone marrow. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy can cause the body to release the progenitor cells it has and create new ones. And these are cells that can, these are now cells that flood the blood, that go to the site of injury, and can de novo become new blood vessels, new collagen to restore the health of those tissues and allow them to heal. Wow. So it's not only diabetic foot ulcers that benefit from that, but it's actually certain uh, small portion of cancer survivors who have had radiation therapy can develop uh, what's called delayed radiation injury, late effects of radiation injury, where over time surrounding tissues out, you know, that were near the site of the cancer that was taken care of 
can over time start to break down. Um, they can the the smaller blood vessels, the capillaries, the arterioles can start to break down. The collagen matrix can start to break down. So that over time, you look at these tissues and they look hypovascular. There's no small blood vessels and they look fibrotic, so scar tissue. And in that case, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is the only known therapy that can actually reverse that process, regrow small blood vessels, restore collagen to that. So there's a speci couple specific types of uh, radi delayed radiation injury, if you would, um, that can occur that really tend to benefit from hyperbaric oxygen therapy. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Marvin Hybor. He's the medical director for Upstate University Hospital's wound care and hyperbaric oxygen programs. I also wanted to ask you about the use of hyperbaric oxygen for head injuries, and that's an experimental thing, right? It is, and so there's been a growing interest in that area. It's still in the research phase, but there had been some early studies done, say on individual patients, what we call published case reports or small case series that suggested that hyperbarics may help with certain types of traumatic brain injury. And more recently in the past five to seven years, the Department of Defense actually funded some studies looking at subacute traumatic brain injury and chronic brain, brain injury. So that we're talking months out. And some of the results are in at this point, um, mixed results, um, some showing possible benefit, others not showing benefit. And they've honed in on a specific uh, cohort of patients who have had traumatic brain injury and PTSD as a specific cohort that may be of benefit and there's interest in performing further studies select, selective and specific to that patient population. So more, more to come on that. Yeah, and then there's also an acute brain injury, which would be in the hours after it occurs. There is a new study that's just going to be getting going in the next 6 to 12 months, multi-center national study, uh, looking at acute traumatic brain injury and use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Interesting. Well, for someone who's listening who thinks hyperbaric oxygen therapy may be of benefit for them, how do they connect with you? How do they find the hyperbaric oxygen so if they were to just do a Google search for Upstate University Hospital or Upstate Medical University Hyperbaric Medicine or Upstate University Hospital Wound Care Center, it should take them to our link. Uh, they should be able to find our contact phone number and, uh, and other contact information. We are a referral-based center. So, so we, they should talk to their primary care so doctor So we do first. ask that they talk to their primary care doctor or if there's a specialist, right, dealing with a particular concern, maybe they've had some radiation injury to the bladder and they're dealing with their urologist, the urologist could refer them, or if it's their GI doctor, their GI doctor could refer them for radiation proctitis. But the reason that we are referral-based instead of just in individual is that most, a lot of times what we're treating is multifactorial. And it's very important that we're coordinating with a patient's primary care doctor or specialist because there's, we're giving certain types of tr uh, specialized treatment that also need to be done in the context of overall care. Do you find that physicians in central New York are aware of um, what hyperbaric oxygen therapy can be used for? And would they be likely to recommend a patient on their own? It varies. Uh, it depends on where a physician is trained a lot of times. So they may have trained somewhere where hyperbaric uh, oxygen therapy wasn't immediately available, and so they have less awareness and, uh, and uh, experience with it versus those who have trained somewhere else. So it really varies depending on the physician. Do health insurers typically cover hyperbaric oxygen? For the conditions that we discussed, yes. Okay. Now, um, walk me through what a patient would expect at a visit. Do they, is it one visit they'll see some results from, or do they, does it take repeated visits? Sure. So both in the wound care center and in, in, in hyperbaric. So in the wound care center, they're going to come in for an initial consult. We're going to, like I said, most of the time these, these wounds are multifactorial. So we're going to gather the information on that so we know what we need to treat. And then they'll follow up with a consistent provider week to week. And we typically see our patients in the wound care center every week or, or two weeks. So it's uh, just so that we can 
aggressively treat that wound and get it to heal. Uh, in the hyperbaric treat, uh, treatment, they're going to come in for an initial consult. They're going to see one of the hyperbaric physicians, and they're going to get a treatment course recommendation. With hyperbaric oxygen therapy, it is a big commitment on the part of the patients because after the consult, we would then get insurance authorization and then schedule them to start treatment. And we're talking about typically six to eight weeks of treatment, Monday through Friday for two hours a day. So it's a big commitment. It's between 30 and 40 treatments typically. So you really have to be committed to sticking through the treatment plan all the way through. You do. So are there any patients who should not undergo hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Are there any contraindications? There are contraindications. Uh, most of them are relative contraindications and better assessed by one of the hyperbaric medicine specialists to determine um, if, if they're still okay to undergo treatment. The only one that no patient's going to come into the uh, hyperbaric medicine for consultation on is a untreated pneumothorax. So that's a collapsed lung that would need to be treated prior to to uh, hyperbaric Before oxygen therapy, they, okay. but with the patient population we're talking about, uh, that wouldn't be a concern. So it would really be a matter of assessing their situation. What about any risks to be aware of or any side effects from hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Yeah, absolutely. Like any treatment, there's always benefits and risks. The most common risks in hyperbaric oxygen therapy had to do with the eyes and the ears. In terms of the ears, the middle ear which is when we, when we look with our otoscope at the, the middle eardrum, behind that is the middle ear. Most of the time that's filled with air. If you get an infection, you might, it might be filled with fluid. So it's filled with air and it can get squeezed uh, when the pressures increase. So the way that we avoid that is to constantly have the patient yawn or swallow or move their jaw to open up the eustachian tube to let extra air in during the compression phase, the first five to ten minutes and if even if a little bit of what we call barotrauma occurs the eardrum may get a little red there may be a little fluid that doesn't mean that they're going to have long-term problems that'll go away within days to weeks on its own another common side effect is some reversible change in their visual acuity so that's a little blurry at a distance uh, and that can occur over 20, 30, 40 treatments and usually goes back to baseline within six to eight weeks after treatment. Thank you to Dr. Marvin Hybor, the Medical Director of Wound Care and Hyperbaric Oxygen at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, one thing that improves survival rates for lung cancer patients. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate University Hospital debuted its thoracic oncology program in 1999. It's defined by a multidisciplinary team approach, which other medical providers at the Upstate Cancer Center have since adopted, and which has been shown to significantly boost a patient's survival. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about this milestone of 20 years of service is Dr. Leslie Komen. She's a thoracic surgeon by training who is now the director for outreach for the Upstate Cancer Center, and she's the founding member of Upstate's thoracic oncology program. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Coleman. Thanks, Amber. Let's start by uh, explaining what multidisciplinary means. It's a Multi big word. Multidisciplinary means that all the different specialists who might be involved in a patient's care meet together and talk about the plan of care for the patient. And for cancer patients, this usually means often a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist, and some form of internist, depending on the type of cancer. For lung cancer, it's a pulmonary specialist. For abdominal cancer, it's a gastroenterologist. Plus, the non-medical disciplines, such as nutrition, integrative therapy, palliative care, survivorship, psychological support, spiritual care, pain management, social work, and all the 
ancillary disciplines that a patient needs to help them through their cancer journey. So it sounds like a huge team. It's a huge team. And, but it also sounds like it would be coordinated. Yes, we coordinate the first visit with the thoracic oncology program. It's for anybody who has recently diagnosed or suspected lung cancer or other cancers in the chest. And the team sees the patient, reviews all the images, the biopsies, if, if any have been done, and the patient usually gets a full set of breathing tests to see how fit they are to withstand whatever treatment is going to be prescribed. Then all the specialists meet together and decide upon a treatment plan. The patient then continues with the specialist most appropriately designated for their current form of treatment, and then they go on from there. So they would, this patient would kind of get the, the team report uh, through their, their doctor. Right. You the get they... all your opinions from all the different specialists right on the same day. In places that don't have such a coordinated approach, the doctors still communicate. However, the patient will have to go around to different offices of different doctors, possibly on different days, to get everybody's evaluation. And then they may talk among themselves, probably not in such a formal meeting as we have here. So I was going to ask you to describe sort of the difference between the multidisciplinary right. versus the traditional, but that's Right. That's it saves the, the patient time because all the specialists are right there at the same time, and it gets them through the workup faster. They get to their right course of treatment faster. It seems to me, too, that you've got all of these brains put together at once. It's almost like getting a bunch of second opinions all at once. Multiple opinions all at once. And some of the discussions get a little bit heated because people have different opinions and knowledge. And that's how we come to an agreement and the patient gets the very best choice. So one doctor may think this is the treatment we need, but one of his colleagues, his or her colleagues says... Yeah, but you forgot about this. This is important. Right. We need to or do. I just went to a meeting and found some updated information, and maybe we ought to try this. So is multidisciplinary, is this the type of care that patients would get at most of the major cancer centers in America? At many major cancer centers, they will get something like this. When we started our program 20 years ago, our founding team visited and had visitors from in particular, the University of North Carolina Cancer Center and Dana-Farber Cancer Center in Boston. And we modeled our program very much on those two. So the Upstate Cancer Center has multidisciplinary care teams, not just for lung cancer, but what are the other cancer types? So we designed the third floor of the cancer center to provide multidisciplinary care. And now we have a breast multidisciplinary program, a hepatobiliary program, which is for cancers of the liver, pancreas, and gallbladder, a head and neck program, which is for cancers of the mouth, throat, and neck. And slightly differently organized, we have multidisciplinary team review for cancers of the kidney, bladder, and prostate. In the future, we will be adding these programs for brain and spinal cord tumors and gynecologic oncology such as ovary, cervix, and uterus. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Leslie Komen about the thoracic oncology program, which has been in place at Upstate for 20 years. Now, I want to talk about the evidence that's out there that this team approach, the multidisciplinary care, can actually boost survival. What do we know about that? Well, 
it's pretty hard to come by that evidence, but our SUNY partners at Stony Brook have actually been able to measure this because they have two tracks for patients. Some of their patients go through a similar multidisciplinary program, and some of them are treated in a more traditional way. And they have found that for every stage of lung cancer, the patients who were evaluated in a multidisciplinary fashion had better outcomes and survivals than the patients who are evaluated in a traditional method. Here at Upstate, most of our patients are seen in a multidisciplinary fashion, and we don't actually have a way to tag them in our system. However, since we began in 1999 to 2016, which is still a few years ago, we have found for every stage of lung cancer, the survivals have improved several percent over these almost 20 years. And remember, this is before we can measure the effects of newer methodology such as targeted agents and immunotherapy. Interesting. All right. Well, let's talk about lung cancer because it does still remain the leading cancer killer in both men and women, right? Yes, around the world and in the United States. And is it true that lung cancer is more curable if it's caught in the early stage? Absolutely. If we find lung cancers in the earliest stage, which is stage one, it, 80% of the time it's curable by surgery alone. Are more younger people diagnosed with lung cancer than we used to see? Probably not, although there have been some smaller studies which have showed an increased incidence. People below the age of 50 comprise only 5% of lung cancer patients. The lung cancer incidence has fallen by 30 to 40% in every age group uh, over the last 15 to 20 years. And this is because of the reduced incidence of smoking. Now in young people, and if you're talking about the very young, less than 40 or even less than 25 years old, most of those cancers are different than the cancers identified in older patients. They have a different cell type. They are probably more common in women than in men. And in younger people, unfortunately, they're usually discovered later because no one believes that such a young patient has lung cancer. And so until they have a symptom that is very persistent and significant, they don't get evaluated for it. So are these different lung cancers, are they not tied to smoking? They're well... There are many other causes for lung cancer besides smoking. Smoking remains the very, very most significant one. However, secondhand smoke is the second. In very young patients, like under 25, they are not necessarily smoking-related. In patients under 40 years of old of age, there is also a much higher incidence of some sort of genetic problem that has led to the lung cancer. Now there's different types of lung cancer. I've heard it divided by small cell and non-small cell. Are those the two main categories? Those are the two main categories. Most lung cancers are non-small cell, which has its own subcategories. The small cell cancers are a little bit less common than they used to be. They're almost always smoking related. And they are usually discovered in a more advanced stage because they're very rapidly growing. The outcome is not as good with small cell cancer. Often surgery is not part of the treatment plan because it's too advanced for surgery at the time it's discovered. And although they respond very well to the first course of chemotherapy, they have a quite strong tendency to come back again. So for the major type, the non-small cell, you mentioned 
it, well, I wanted to go over the treatment options. You mentioned surgery. Is that for non-small cell? Surgery is the treat the first part of the treatment or the main part of the treatment for stages one and two lung cancer, and it sometimes plays a part in stage three patients also. And then is chemo and or radiation? Chemo plays a part in stage two, three, and four. The only stage that chemo doesn't apply to is stage one. And sometimes the patient gets the chemo before surgery. In stages two, in stage two, the chemo is usually given after surgery. And in stage three, radiation is also a part of the treatment. This is the advantage to a multidisciplinary program where we can consider each patient on their own and decide in what order to, do we give them these three treatments. Because if I wasn't at a multidisciplinary team, I might go to a surgeon who does the surgery without ever thinking that maybe the oncologist would want to do some chemo first. Right. And although most doctors are responsible and will talk to their colleagues, it's a matter of phone tag and having that doctor get their radiologist to go over the films with them again, and it's just not as efficient. Well, in terms of newer treatment options, what's being offered um, insofar as targeted therapies, immunotherapies? Are, is that being used for lung cancer yet? Absolutely. And we have in the other disciplines as well. We're doing most of our lung cancer surgery here at Upstate now by robotic methods, very minimally invasive. And for radiation, we we are a leader in targeted radiation, which is the ability to give people with certain smaller lung cancers three or four treatments rather than six weeks of treatment, which is an enormous time saving for the patient. For the medical oncology part or chemotherapy, we are now using some standard chemotherapy as well as specific targeted agents for certain patients. It turns out that there are four or five mutations in the genes of the tumor itself that are altered in a few percent of lung cancer patients. And we analyze all of our patients for all of these mutations. If a patient has one of these, then there is a specific drug that we can give them, which has a higher chance of success because the patient has a particular mutation in the tumor. As time goes on, more and more of these drugs will be discovered. We know hundreds of mutations in lung cancer, but we only have drugs for a few of them now. Then there's immunotherapy, which is used more now in many patients rather than just those with certain receptors for immune therapy. There are many kinds of immunotherapy and They are specifically used for certain patients. For instance, a common one for lung cancer is pembrolizumab. The trade name of that is Keytruda. And there are ads for that on television. And there are others as well that are used in different stages, different cell types, and different uh, lines of treatment. If it's the second line of treatment or the third line of treatment, different things are given to patients. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Leslie Coleman for this look at Upstate's Thoracic Oncology Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the success of vaccines. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we'll be discussing one of the most successful public health interventions of the past century, vaccines, with my guest, Dr. Doug Campos-Ockcult. 
He's a senior lecturer at the University of Arizona College of Public Health and a clinical professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. He's in Syracuse to speak at Upstate Medical University, and he made time to stop by HealthLink on Air. Welcome, Dr. Campos Colt. Thank you. I'm sure you know that New York State um, did away with the non-medical exemptions and now requires all children from daycare up through high school to be vaccinated. And some parents have decided to homeschool their kids because of this. If vaccines really are a major public health achievement, why are there parents out there that um, don't believe that? I wish I knew. You know, it's a, it's a different reality that they accept. Uh, my reality is that we in this country have achieved marked reductions in the incidence of infectious diseases and all the morbidity and mortality that go along with them. Now, it's been a, quite a while, but basically a generation, since these infectious diseases have been prevalent. So young parents today, middle-aged parents today, may never have seen the results of these infectious diseases and their impact on families and children. That's a good point. So they don't appreciate how serious these infectious diseases can be. In fact, frequently you'll hear them minimize the seriousness of them. Having never seen them, they think that there's no real reason to be vaccinated. And I want to get back to that in a minute, because that individual choice issue is one that has some real ethical implications, I think. Um, and the misinformation that's out there in today's world with internet, social media, the tribalism that goes on with where people get their news and the silos they get it from, the amount of misinformation is just astounding. And, and I can see where somebody might get into that network, have their beliefs reinforced continually, and think that vaccines are either not necessary or the potential harms exceed the benefits without really seeing the full picture. My reality is this. In this country, we've achieved marked reductions of infectious diseases, the morbidity and mortality they cause, primarily because of vaccines. We have a safe and abundant supply of vaccines. We have a very transparent and open system for making decisions about their use. I can explain about that later if you'd like. And we have a very robust system in monitoring vaccine safety. Uh, I'm quite confident that our vaccine supply is safe and that vaccines are effective and they are one of the most effective and important public health interventions of the past hundred years. Well, let's talk mm -hmm. about some of the vaccinations mm -hmm. that kids in New York and probably the whole country have to are, are advised to get are diphtheria and tetanus, hepatitis B, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, mm -hmm. chickenpox, hemophilus influenza, meningococcal, and pneumococcal infections. Okay. Are all of those um, serious diseases? Can you die from all of those? Yes. Now, there's the severity of those vary. Okay. For instance, hemophilus influenza type B, very, very serious illness. Um, when I was in residency back in the early 80s, we would see several children per week who would come in with that. They'd be seriously ill, 10% mortality rate, even with antibiotics. Um, they would have to take IV antibiotics for weeks to cure that infection. Uh, be in the hospital, getting IV access is not an easy matter in those infants. In a baby, yeah. I was at a conference this morning and I asked the residents who are in training today, how many of you have ever seen a case of hemophilus influenza type B? Nobody raised their hand. So the res even residents being trained in pediatric hospitals today may get out of three years of training and never see a case. We used to have over 20,000 cases of those per year. If you lived through the infection, the chance that you would have a neurological deficit of some kind, either uh, in terms of your cognitive abilities or your hearing, uh, was very significant. So all of those, that morbidity and that mortality, we don't have today because of the haemophilus influenza type B vaccine. Now let's take another uh, illness. And this one you'll hear a lot about um, in the news, about measles, because mm -hmm. some parents who are opposed to vaccine will let their children get measles. That was happening in New York. And then their child would recover from measles and they would say, see, mild childhood respiratory viral uh, exanthem, no big deal. Why are we vaccinating against this? Well, let's step back a minute. 
measles has a mortality rate of about one in a thousand, meaning out of a thousand kids who get measles, one will die. Now that some people would debate that and say, no, it's not that high. It's one per 2000 or something. In developing countries, it's about one per hundred to 10 per hundred. Okay. So it, it can be a very serious illness. Now it is true that the average child who gets measles is very sick for about a week, 10% chance of ending up in the hospital. Chances are they will recover without sequelae, without additional complications. But if you take a death rate of one per thousand, let's just take one per thousand for argument's sake. Before we had measles vaccine, we had millions of cases of measles every year. Now, if you have millions of cases and a death rate of one per thousand, you have thousands of deaths. Even though most kids will recover from it without sequelae. So you really have to see the big picture. Are we really willing in this country to go back to the days where we had hundreds or thousands of preventable deaths from measles? I don't think so. And there's no way to predict if your kid is going to be the 999 or the one, right? Your chances are in your favor when you look at those odds. But we have to take a societal picture and a bigger view, I think. So, but, but measles is, uh, you know, on the highly infectious, a little more benign side for most people, but it does have serious complications and a death rate, which would result in significant number of deaths. Haemophilus influenza type B, completely different. <clears throat> it's not as prevalent, but if you get it, you're, you have a chance of dying that's much higher. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so each, each disease has its own characteristics. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Doug Campos-Alcalt. He's from the University of Arizona College of Public Health and the Arizona College of Medicine. Let's talk about adverse reactions. Um, What are they? How common are they Mm -hmm. um, with vaccines? Because there could be an adverse reaction, right? Right. So what is that all about? All right. So there's adverse reactions are categorized into... Uh, various levels of seriousness. It's fairly common to get a mild reaction after a vaccine. Soreness at the site of injection, redness at the site of injection, possibly some low-grade fever, malaise, you know, not feeling well for a day or two. Those are a common, uh, you know, uh, probably half, maybe up to half, 50% of those who get some vaccines will have a mild reaction like that. More serious reactions uh, include um, allergic reactions, where somebody would have a, a really an anaphylactic reaction, life-threatening um, from a vaccine, those are extremely rare. Now, they do happen extremely rarely. If you look at the data from legitimate scientific sources, you'll find that r- rates of those that serious, and they cannot be predicted at this point, <clears throat> that the rates of those serious adverse reactions are extremely rare, but, but that it, they do happen. And we, that's why we've developed systems to help compensate families for the medical expenses and things that might happen from that. Because we, as a society, get huge value from vaccines. We want everybody to get the benefit of vaccines and to um, not have financial barriers from medical costs and so forth from adverse reactions to be a hindrance. Um, so there is a program in place to compensate those people who might suffer from that. Again, extremely rare. If you look at the data from that vaccine injury compensation program, it looks like there's one serious adverse reaction where somebody is incapacitated for up to a month, has some serious problems, uh, may even die from a severe allergic reaction, although that is even rarer. Um, But something that serious happens about one out of every two million vaccines. Okay, so they do happen. Okay. What can you tell us about the safety of vaccines? I think vaccines are one of the safest products we have on the market. Um, and I think the system in place to monitor that is one of the most re- robust. The CDC and the FDA have set up several systems to monitor vaccine safety. Um, those are frequently misunderstood um, by people who don't, who, who don't look into them and how they work thoroughly. Um, uh, there's the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, which is a voluntary system to receive reports. That, is, that does not prove anything. It doesn't prove safety. It doesn't prove 
um, non-safety. It just simply is an indicator that helps CDC see if there seems to be something about a vaccine that they need to pay attention to. The vaccine safety data link system is a very robust system that has complete medical records and vaccine histories on close to 9 million people in this country through a collaboration with some health maintenance organizations. And whenever there's a question about vaccine safety, that's where it gets referred. And a, and a study can be done in very quick time, uh, over a very quick time period, to sh to, and, and almost always those results come back negative. That, in fact, the, what you saw at the, in the VAERS system was just an artifact. Going real life with vac you know, populations with good records and vaccines didn't pan out. Sometimes they do pan out, but they pan out at rates like one per 40,000 um, or something like that. Um, where, you know, for instance, with uh, uh, rotavirus vaccine, it, there was some concern at one point in time that there might be a complication from that called intussusception, which is a problem with your intestine where it can be, uh, it's usually not lethal, but it can be where your intestine kind of rolls up on itself. Uh, this found that this may be occurring in those vaccinated with rotavirus vaccine after the first dose within 30 days at an increased rate of one per 40,000, one per 40,000, okay? And the CDC looked at that and said, well, <clears throat> you know, that's probably, uh, uh, considering the amount of disease and morbidity and mortality being prevented by the vaccine, that's an acceptable risk. And if, if somebody gets into deception, it's in this country generally almost always not fatal, but it costs medical it causes sure. medical costs sure. and, and so forth. Well, that's compensable through the okay. vaccine injury compensation program. Okay, so those are the kinds of decisions that go on. So one term I do not use anymore is perfectly safe. I do not imply that vaccines are 100% safe at all times. They are a very safe product. They cause far fewer serious adverse reactions than almost any other medical product on the, that's available. <clears throat> Um, and there's a very rigorous system to monitor that. And if we had a vaccine that was causing serious adverse events anywhere near the rate that some of the anti-vaccine groups claim, that vaccine would not stay uh, available to the American public. Um, we, the, the system in place monitors that kind of thing. Are people just not trusting, because CDC and FDA, those are government agencies, are people just not trusting government? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I think that's one of the more discouraging trends I've seen in my lifetime in my career um, is that uh, official expertise uh, is disrespected. And, and I think the fault lies on both ends of the political spectrum for that. And both ends have been very successful in raising doubts about uh, expertise and Everyone now thinks they're an expert. Uh, well, there's a lot of talk that the vaccines actually cause disease, specifically like autism. There's been correct. Well, I, I I run into very few people who claim that anymore. That was a prominent uh, claim back in around 2000 to 2010. The scientific evidence on that is very conclusive. Um, and I rarely hear anybody claim that. Every so often, you will um, hear a parent say, well, my child got autism um, from a vaccine, um, but not, as, not as nearly as much as you used to. And that, like I say, has been thoroughly debunked. Now, the one that's come up recently is that vaccines kill children. You'll see this on billboards and other places. I, I'm not sure who all is behind it, but it'll say, healthy children don't die. Vaccine killed my child. Well, let's step back for a minute. Healthy children do die. Mm -hmm. They die from sudden infant death syndrome, a number of other things. Uh, let's just take sudden infant death syndrome. Um, with as many vaccines as we give in this country, there's going to be a child die from sudden infant death syndrome, which we don't really fully understand, in close proximity to having received a vaccine simply by chance. Well, that's a very... That's a very easy question to study. You can do studies like that and say, let's look at kids vaccinated and see how many die within one, two, three, five days versus longer periods. Is there a, is there a spike, a peak of deaths immediately after vaccination? And those studies have been done and they show that, in fact, immediately after vaccination, 
<clears throat> there's simply no spike. You have exactly the same number of kids dying from SIDS and other causes as, as at other times. And that's the way to study it. Anecdotes and single case reports do not prove anything. That's a very hard concept for the public to understand. When your child dies, <clears throat> and your child dies from SIDS, and somebody comes to you and says, your child was vaccinated two days before that vaccine obviously caused your death. That's something you grasp onto, unfortunately. Uh, and I can understand that. Um, but scientifically, it's not sound. It's not sound. <clears throat> well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Doug Campos-Outcult. He's a senior lecturer at the University of Arizona College of Public Health and also a clinical professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Patricia Beloit gives us a brief but very sharp snapshot of the end of the life process in her poem, Palliative. First last hours with my mother. Through the third floor window, I notice the sky has formed a few faint plumes of pink light, the black night fading to Payne's gray. Palm trees across the hospital parking lot emerge as hazy sentinels on this fragile morning, which may be her last. Almost a week has gone, fluids withdrawn, and dawn is taking the shape of one more palliative day. Thin breaths measure moments, and a few clouds define what is near from distant space. Her sleeping face floats in the median. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, celiac disease and gluten-free diets. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.